0: I'm Keegan and I'm Madigan and you're listening to your Your angry Angry neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hi, everyone. How are you all doing? I hope you're doing well. Um, I want to start the episode off with a brief disclaimer. There is a very important Dodgers baseball game happening in the living room right now. So hopefully we don't get too much screaming from my lovely boyfriend Max. But in the past, he has been known to... Um, make some noises while we are recording. Uh, but you know, Anthony Keegan's boyfriend always did the same. It makes me laugh. So uh, hopefully he's, he's well-behaved. And if it happens, you all think it's funny. Welcome to the third installment of Bad Girls. I am going to be talking about someone today who I think is particularly bad, particularly evil. Uh, If you have seen the FX show Mrs. America, you will know a little bit about who I am talking about today. I am going to be talking about the anti-feminist Phyllis Schlafly. So Phyllis Schlafly is many bad things. First of all, I want to open by saying that my file for my notes under this instead of being Phyllis Schlafly is Phil Schlaffingstock, which I think is really funny and I know would probably really piss her off. So it makes me really happy. Phyllis Schlafly is many bad things. She has been called a traitor to her sex by Buddy Friedan. She is considered a radical anti-communist and the most famous anti-feminist in history. She is credited as boosting what our right-wing culture now looks like, teaching them that as long as they start new culture wars, they will always end up on top. And she made people believe that an amendment made to give them rights would actually ruin their lives. When author Margaret Atwood was writing her best-selling novel The Handmaid's Tale, she took inspiration for the once-liberated, now-cold-and-cruel character Serena Joy from none other than Miss Phyllis Schlafly. I think for anyone who doesn't already know who Phyllis Schlafly is, Serena Joy is a near-perfect comparison if you are familiar at all with The Handmaid's Tale. Phyllis is heavily responsible for the Republican Party becoming the far-right mess that it has become because, believe it or not, the parties weren't always quite so divided. Without Phyllis Schlafly, would Reagan's presidency have happened? Would Trump's presidency have happened? I don't know. Maybe an interesting question for you all to think about when I'm telling this story. All right. So Phyllis, who I will be referring to as Phil periodically throughout this episode, was born Phyllis McAlpine Stewart, which sounds like a fancy pants name, on August 15th, 1924 in St. Louis, Missouri. Her mom's name was Odile, but they called her Dottie, which I'm assuming is pronounced Dottie. It's spelled D-A-D-I, but I'm not about to be calling her Daddy. So I'm going to say Dottie. Uh, And her dad was named Bruce. Her parents were both conservative Republicans, but I guess politics weren't really discussed a whole lot when Phyllis was young, according to her. It wasn't like it was a really um, common topic of conversation over the dinner table or anything like that. Oh, and they were devout, devout Catholics and Phyllis would remain a very devout Catholic throughout her life. Her mom was actually uh, an educated woman with a degree in library science, and her dad, who was much older than her mom, worked until the Great Depression. Then he was jobless for years. Now, in Phyllis's telling of the story, the family pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and got through this time easily and happily through the hard work. But in reality, if you dig a little deeper, they had a rich uncle. I really wish I had a rich uncle. And Phil went with her mom and sister to live in Los Angeles with this rich uncle for a while. So it sounds like this period of time was probably between the ages of six and nine for Phil. And I don't know. So this idea that, you know, the parents just kind of worked their way through it and were like all smiles and whatever. Already that story is kind of starting to fall apart. And it's hard for me to believe that Phyllis was really as happy as she claims during this time. Uh, She even wrote a diary entry once saying how excited she was for the three-day train ride with no air conditioning from St. Louis to Los Angeles, which is like, I don't know about that. And she was just six years old when all of this started happening, and she was taken away from her father and her home, her stable life, and was sent away to a foreign home without a complete family. So I can only assume that Phyllis was taught to hide these kinds of emotions and appear tough. By 1932, and Phil was nine, her father had pretty much given up looking for a job. The Stewart girls came back from Los Angeles to St. Louis, and Dottie became the sole breadwinner of the house. So this already is probably going to sound very strange. Why is this notoriously anti-feminist being raised by what we would consider at the time to be a very feminist mother? She was the sole breadwinner of the house. One of the reasons that Dottie actually had to find work was because Bruce, Phyllis's father, refused government aid. He was a staunch anti-communist. And anti-communist believed that any sort of government interference and help of any kind, any sort of like handouts, is strictly communist. So because of that, Dottie was kind of like thrown into the workforce Um, she was an educated woman it seems like just from the stories I've heard that she probably did want to go out into the workforce and she she worked a lot and worked really really hard for her family Um, they did still have this safety net of the wealthy uncle beneath them though but Dottie really did step up to the plate So she worked two jobs, six days a week. And then in order for Phyllis and her sister to go to this all private girls school, her mom would work on her day off in the library and do like office work and stuff for the school to pay for her children's tuition. Like that's a really dedicated, amazing Mom, But I wonder if the fact that her mom was always gone and always working made her kind of yearn for that like housewife stay at home mom that was always there. I don't know maybe there was resentment building instead of, you know, feeling proud of your mom. Education was very important to Phyllis's parents, but it was even more important to herself. She was very bookish and obsessed with studying all through her life. That was like her hobby was learning new things, which I actually feel her on that. But our um, interests in learning are a little very different. (laughs) She didn't seem to have any other hobbies except for learning. I guess years later, when she and another woman were waiting to go on stage for a big event, the woman told her that she felt like Mick Jagger. And Phyllis just responded saying, who? (sighs) Phil, come on now, girl. She got really good grades, of course, all through school. And she was even the editor of her elementary school paper, which like if that doesn't say that you are reaching for the stars, I don't know what else does. And I find it interesting that she was already using the media in some way to uh, gain, I don't know, power and control. I don't know if a elementary school child would see that as power and control. But I don't know, for me, even as a kid, whenever I was like in charge of a group or something, there was this sense of like superiority. So I wonder if she already kind of understood of how the media could sway her audience, being her classroom, to believe and read certain things that she herself put out. And we're going to see more about how Phyllis's writings are important throughout her life. So her dad, Bruce, finally got a job during World War II, and he also designed and patented an engine during this time. But I read somewhere that he never sold it, so he made this really cool thing, got the patent, and then, like, never got any money for it. As for Phyllis, she went off to college. She got a scholarship to a small women's college and attended for a year before transferring. She got a degree at Washington University in St. Louis. Now... Phyllis will tell you that she then got a degree at Harvard, but this is a bold-faced lie. When Phyllis went to Harvard in 1945, they had just started admitting women to their graduate program, but they still refused to give Harvard degrees to women, so she technically got a degree from the female equivalent school, Radcliffe College. Nice try, Phil. Here's what she said in a speech in 2013 to a crowd of right-wing activists. Let me tell you, I worked my way through college and got my college degree at a great university, Washington University of St. Louis in 1944, no discrimination of any kind. I then went to Harvard Graduate School, where I competed with all the guys, no discrimination whatsoever. I got my Harvard degree in 1945, and my mother got her bachelor's degree at a great co-ed university in 1920. So all the opportunities were out there before you all were born, and the feminists have absolutely nothing to do with this. Okay, let's do a bit more unpacking after all that. In 1920, when her mother got her degree, let's put this into perspective. The 19th Amendment hadn't even been passed yet. Women did not have the right to vote. So you can't go telling me that your mom didn't experience discrimination. And I also think that this really shows her privilege because by comparison, there was this ACLU lawyer, Brenda Fain Fastow, who talks about a law professor that she had at Harvard because she actually went there that would only answer the women's questions once a year on a day that he called Ladies Day. Fuck this guy. Seriously. Seriously. Somehow Phyllis was completely unaware or unable to admit the discrimination that she experienced in her own life. And she is unable to see the fact that she has been discriminated against since she wasn't even given a legitimate Harvard degree. Like she's purposefully covering this up and saying that she got a Harvard degree because she knows that she didn't. Oh, I forgot to mention, remember how she said that she worked her way through college? Well, that part was actually true. She worked as part of the war effort, and her job was testing ammunition by shooting off guns and rifles, and apparently, she was a really good shot. She was able to pay tuition herself with her $1,250 a year salary, which in today's money would be about $20,000 in American money. Believe it or not, you could actually live on your own and pay for college with that amount of money in 1945. But after the war, the job was no longer available to her because so many jobs were going to the veterans that came home from the war. So I think this is oddly feminist of her, thinking that she deserves to have a job just as much as the men, but her reasoning for this was not so rational. She takes after her dad in this and doesn't like that the government had the ability to control the job market in any way. She actually wrote an essay about it, and it won an essay contest in 1945, where she wrote, The cards are stacked against the enterprising and ambitious person and in favor of the mediocre adults or unqualified veteran. Not very patriotic. So for her, it was less of like a social justice issue and more of just the trope of like people are coming in and stealing our jobs kind of thing. She was also unhappy with the government's handling of the economy, so she got a job at a think tank at the American Enterprise Institute where she worked for about a year. So the American Enterprise Institute is a conservative think tank, which is still active today, and they're really into talking about QAnon stuff now. When AEI was founded in 1943, it was the first sign of what would become a more organized conservative movement in the United States. So all these conservatives that used to kind of keep those discriminatory thoughts to themselves were now starting to organize into groups. The AEI was against FDR and his New Deal, and this was when the anti-New Deal Republicans and the Southern Conservative Republicans kind of banded together, becoming a new kind of racist, bigoted mess. Phil's biographer claims that she knew nothing of the racist and anti-Semitic sides of the group, but that is clearly a lie. The verbiage that they use in their mission statement in the 40s, to me at least, kind of shows otherwise, just briefly, kind of what their thought process was. So it reads, the tide of radicalism may be receding momentarily, but this certainly does not mean that America has returned to sound fiscal policies, put an end to deficit financing, yada, 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 and haven't stopped making utopian plans for the future. So, In this group, they talk about the threat against FDR's socialism, saying that even if he is out of power, they still have to work against everything that he stood for to ensure that socialism does not take over the United States. Phyllis was afraid of the forward movement that FDR's presidency brought because – I think it was because she grew up in such an unstable home life that she wanted the traditional American family to remain intact. And other views and progressive movements she felt took that dream away from her. So I think she felt a lot of resentment. After her year at AEI, she is a hardcore conservative ready to do some damage. She moves back to St. Louis when she was 22 years old and marches right over to Claude Bakewell's office and offers to be his campaign manager. Uh, Bakewell found Phyllis incredibly amusing, so he let her interview for the job. Apparently, he was so impressed with her knowledge that he hired her right on the spot. And again, this is a very feminist thing of Phyllis to do. It was unprecedented for a woman to be in the role of campaign manager at the time, and she was only 22 years old. And let me just describe Phyllis Schlafly to you really quick if you don't have an image in your head. She is like... The all-American, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, waspy kind of woman, like very, like dressed kind of like Jackie Kennedy, you know, the very nice attire, very housewifey, things like that. So what was even more precedent about this is that not only was she the campaign manager, but Bakewell actually won. She did a really good job. Um, Unfortunately, he was only in Congress for two years before being voted out. I guess maybe not unfortunately. He was probably a dick. But because of her successful campaign, Phyllis now had a permanent invitation to the Republican National Convention for the rest of her life. She was in In 1949, when she was 24 years old, she took a job as a political operator, and also in 1949, she met Fred Schlafly, a conservative activist much like she aspired to be, a staunch Catholic like herself, and he was also a very wealthy attorney. He checked all the boxes. He learned about Phyllis through a friend who told him about her, and he was attracted to the things that he learned. They would meet once a week when they were recording, but most of the time they exchanged letters. And if you were hoping for some steamy Fifty Shades stuff, you would be sadly mistaken. These letters consisted of intellectual conversation and theological questions. Hot. After they got married in October of 1949, they brought along a separate suitcase on their honeymoon to Mexico, just for books. Nerds. Phyllis's obsession with anti-communism grew and grew. At this time, she was convinced that President Harry Truman was a communist. This was the start of the grassroots anti-communist movement. They pushed this conspiracy that communism was taking over the United States and you should all be really fucking scared. Her idea was that the U.S. should arm itself with as much nuclear weaponry as possible to essentially blow up the world before the Soviets get a chance to. This idea was called the first strike capability, and it sounds horrifying. She would write that nuclear weapons were, quote, a marvelous gift given to our country by a wise god, which is very confusing to me because the Soviets also have nuclear weapons. So did different gods send them their nuclear weapons? Or was it the devil that sent them the nuclear weapons? My assumption is that Phyllis probably thought it was the devil. Unluckily for this country, this is when Phil decides to run for Congress. She wanted to defeat the current Republican candidate, who she also believed was a commie, to go up against the Democratic candidate. She won the primary, but luckily didn't win the election and didn't make it into Congress. I believe she tried one or two more times to get into Congress throughout her life, and it never worked. So, ha! But this didn't stop her from getting her message out to the world. She began writing far-right conservative literature. One pamphlet was called A Reading List for Americans, which, Phil claims, if you read them all, you will realize that, quote, we are already engaged in a total war with the communists. She was all about the threat. And she will go on to use the same tactic throughout the 70s against the women's liberation movement. In 1960, she joined the American Security Council, which is another right-wing think tank, think tank, think tank, (laughs) I'm going to keep that in there, (laughs) said to help waive communist influence in American companies. So essentially, that means that they want to fight unions. While at the ASC, she worked with a guy named Admiral Chester Ward as a research team and writing partner. And they would write these books based on these, quote, credible sources, which was never actually cited as being anything really legitimate um, on the two main ways that they felt communists were infiltrating our government. So they wrote number one being the Soviet military threat is real and inescapable. And they mentioned needing to be superior in our military strength to avoid war. Their second point is the Soviet Union seeks to bleed the resources and morale of the United States through satellite wars and weapons. So they were not only afraid of the Soviets coming in and destroying uh, our land physically, but they were worried about the Soviets coming in and the communists coming in and uh, destroying the traditional American family, the traditional American way of life. She was absolutely obsessed with the idea that a communist attack was coming. In the show, Mrs. America, they show her... In, that she has a bomb shelter in her basement. I didn't read that anywhere in anything that I researched or that I listened to. Uh, and I listened to and read a lot. So I it wouldn't surprise me if she did have a bomb shelter, though. I just couldn't find it anywhere to confirm that. But I... I, if I was a betting woman, I would bet quite a bit of money that she had a bomb shelter in her home 100%. During their time working together, Admiral Ward and Phil wrote quite a few books together. And just for fun, here's a few of those titles. One of them is called Strike from Space, a Megadeth mystery, which sounds like a cool sci-fi novel. Another one is called Kissinger on the Couch, which sounds like a bad porno, but is actually an anti-Semitic analysis of Henry Kissinger. And The Betrayers, which are all very negative and doomsday-like. So not for me. All right. So did we think that was bad enough? Phyllis joins the goddamn John Birch Society. Now she would go on to deny this throughout her public life. So let's get to the facts. Okay. So the John Birch Society was formed in 1958 by Robert Welch from Welch's Candy. I had to look it up. I don't think it's the same as Welch's Jelly. Um, which is good. But he did actually invent Junior Mints, which ruined Junior Mints for me. And also the company was later bought by Nabisco, fun fact, and Welch still ran the company for a while after that trade was made, which is just shady as fuck. So you can think about that next time you enjoy some of your Nabisco treats. So this guy and the group was named after this guy that they... That they believed to be like the first martyr of communism, essentially. I didn't look too far into who this John Birch guy was because I really don't give a fuck, but that's the stuff that I read. Welch believed that Dwight D. Eisenhower was a secret communist. This was a really, really, really big thing among anti-communists at the time. Welch was so obsessed that he wrote a very popular book on the topic titled The Politician, which claims that Eisenhower had been part of a communist conspiracy throughout his whole adult life. Their argument from the things that I've understood was that he put in highways and that makes him a communist? I don't know. Anything that Phyllis sees as a handout or things that like help us in any way is considered communist. Again, I didn't look into that too much more because... It would be interesting to have a whole episode on the John Birch Society maybe at some point, but definitely not for today. But I can tell you that they are an extremist group and they are also known to be incredibly racist and they very heavily oppose the civil rights movement. So mainstream Republicans at the time saw the problems with the John Birch Society and didn't want to be associated with something that was known for being so racist and hateful. But since so many members of the Republican Party privately held these beliefs, they started kind of having these like secret memberships and groups. And there were groups in cities all over the countries and they were made sure not to be visibly connected to the John Birch Society. And this was how Phyllis got away with uh, not really being affiliated with them as much. Her public eagle forum that she would create years later worked alongside the John Birch Society to fight the ERA as well. And she was, in fact, a very enthusiastic member. Just this year, researchers found letters written by Phyllis where she refers to her membership in the John Birch Society as starting in 1959. That's the, an interesting thing to think because she did a lot of lying. And I wonder if people before the internet and before uh information could be so widely spread so quickly i wonder if people thought that they could get away with this stuff or i mean maybe this was more common knowledge at the time i'm not really sure i think people did know that she was a member of the john birch society but there was no real way of proving it and now obviously this year we have something where she herself wrote it down I listened to a couple great episodes, by the way, to get a lot of this information from Behind the Bastards. Total shed off to Keegan, uh, as she usually uses them as a source. And Robert from Behind the Bastards sums up this part pretty well. He says, She was an agent of the John Birch Society embedded in the Republican Party. So that's a really good image. Like, there's this very, very racist group, and she's been part of many right wing extremist, very conservative groups. And she is now starting to infiltrate, like, the real republican party like she's not a nobody she is becoming a somebody and that's really scary she attended the rnc in 1960 and believe it or not nixon is actually the good guy in the story kind of so we all know that nixon was a racist motherfucker hopefully but he was a racist motherfucker who also wanted to be president so he made anti-segregation a part of his campaign um This was insulting to Phyllis that a Republican nominee would be for integration. So Phyllis and others from the party pressured Nixon to eliminate this from his platform, and he eventually did. Now, there was no way that Nixon was going to win the election this time around uh, because he was going up against John F. Kennedy, and everybody loved JFK. Phyllis and the other far-right people were trying really hard to keep the Republican Party as white as possible in their voters. Phyllis truly believed that white men were superior, so to have the superior party, you must have superior members. In 2012, she is quoted saying, The people the Republican Party should reach out to are white folks. This was in response to research done that showed that Mitt Romney could have won had he gotten the Black and Latinx vote. Phyllis did not agree with this research, obviously. Phil gained further notoriety in the party when she became the campaign manager for Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, a.k.a. what some people would call the original Trump. Uh, This was in 1964. Goldwater shared the same political ideologies as Phyllis, and they wanted to work together to form their image of the Republican Party. Goldwater ran on the platform of keeping Arizona schools segregated. So he was a super awful human being. They, again, worked together to get as many white voters as they possibly could. She and Goldwater were running against Nelson Rockefeller, who is another douche canoe. But interestingly enough, Rockefeller was trying to tell Republicans to be less racist, which is a good thing that he did. But Phil couldn't stand for that. To ensure the win for Goldwater, Phyllis wrote the book a choice, not an echo, which is a conspiracy theory about how the Republican primary is being stolen by kingmakers in the party who are fighting against the real Republican party. Phyllis would go on to brag for the rest of her life that she wrote this book and self-published it in her free time after tucking her kiddos into bed. You see, it was really just a hobby for Phyllis. It wasn't her life or anything. At least that's what Phil wanted you to believe. She couldn't be for the traditional nuclear family and be a working mother at the same time, so she would downplay her involvement in politics throughout her life. And this is just really frustrating, and this is something that feminists brought up a lot even at the time. Like Gloria Steinem very famously would call out Phyllis Schlafly for actually being kind of a feminist herself as she was a working mom. She was not a stay-at-home mom or a housewife at all. She had a lot of help, and she worked a lot. So this book would go on to become a bestseller, selling over 3 million copies. Actually, this was another glorious lie from Phyllis. She did not self-publish the book, actually. The John Birch Society did. She made a phony publishing name, and the society actually bought all 3 million copies and distributed the books themselves. Bestseller my ass. She was often asked if her activism was okay with her husband. She once told Time Magazine in 1978, I have canceled speeches whenever my husband thought that I had been away from home too much. But she would also claim that she never spent a night away from her children. She has also said in speeches multiple times, I would like to thank my husband Fred for letting me come here today. She would follow it up with, I love to say that because it irritates the women's livers more than anything I say. I hate the way she says livers too. Ugh, so gross. Speaking of her kids, which according to her was her main priority, let's look at Phil's kids. She had six children, John, Andrew, Anne, Bruce, Roger, and Phyllis, who would later rename herself as Liza when she was older. I am going to get into a story of her eldest child, John, later, but I will note now that all of her children support their mother and share her views. Many of them have also gone on to work in politics or law and always defend their mother. Obviously, Goldwater lost, and there was no way he was going to win over LBJ, who at the time had a high approval rating after Kennedy's assassination. Democrats at the time believed that with Goldwater's loss, the right-wing extremist threat would just kind of go away. But Goldwater is credited with having started the new right, which would become the moral majority in years to come. So clearly they were just getting started. After Goldwater's loss, Phyllis was at a bit of a loss herself. It wasn't until a friend informed her about the Equal Rights Amendment that she found a new spark against any progressive movement. At first, they say Phyllis had no problem with the ERA. She said when she had first heard of that when she'd first heard of it, she didn't know all of the dangers. She said when she first heard it, she didn't know of all the dangers it held. Shall we take a look at this dangerous amendment? Section 1. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Section 2. The Congress shall have the power to enforce, by appropriate legislation, the provisions of this article. Section 3. The amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. That's it. But somehow, Phyllis was able to stir up plenty of trouble with this simple text. So like I said, her friend had told her about the ERA a bit, and she wanted her to debate a feminist on the amendment at the end of 1971, and that was when Phyllis changed her mind. It makes perfect sense that she would grab onto another cause to garner herself more power. Her extremist activism against communism flowed easily into her hatred for the government, viewing everyone as equal— I think she also saw this as a female-specific opportunity for herself, one that a man couldn't possibly undertake. By defending the white patriarchy, she is praised by men in power, especially because she acts very humble and sees herself as a mere housewife who somehow stumbled into politics. This was a sneaky strategy to get more women on her side, therefore making the Republican Party of Phyllis's imagination even stronger. In 1972, she started Stop ERA. Now, Stop ERA is all one long acronym. You all are going to cringe so much when I tell you this. STOP stands for Stop Taking Our Privileges. Now, what privileges, you may ask? Why their right to be wives and mothers and their right to be treated like a lady. I think since she was starting to lose relevancy, she grabbed onto the ERA like a life raft to save her own career and the future of the Republican Party. Through her past networking, she was able to band together a group of housewives with similar political views. She started a newsletter called the Schlafly Report as well to be passed around to gain more supporters. Most of Stop ERA members were simple housewives who were coerced by Phyllis to join the movement. After that, she started the Eagle Forum, which is still alive and well today, which is a right-wing advocacy group where Phyllis taught all of its members how to be perfect little conservative activists. I believe that Phyllis used the same scare tactics as she did against communism that she used with the housewives against the feminists. She made feminists the enemy by saying that they are going to take their family away from them. She knows this isn't fucking true, by the way. She just wants to gain power in a party and unite them. She is also convincing this large group of women that they aren't valuable and cannot make it without her. She's almost like a cult leader in that way, where she makes these women so reliant on her that they believe every hateful thing she says, even if they didn't originally share that belief. Once, she herself said that the women she'd recruited didn't even know where their state capital was. She's obviously preying on people that she sees as being vulnerable. She is also keeping them down in terms of power. She doesn't want any of the other women coming close to the success that she's had, so she has to continually kind of teach and coach them and be their leader. An article written by right-wing pro-life activist Ile e. Hoag probably says it better than I do. The women involved were overwhelmingly white, church-going, and from the rural and suburban middle and upper class. By definition, they had privileges to lose, benefiting by association with the white male Christian power structure. These women quickly embraced Schlafly's core message that the push for equality would erase legal differences between men and women. They even bought their more tenuous idea that the ERA would lead to supposed horrors like homosexual marriage, unisex bathrooms, or women in combat. Soon, she had activated a grassroots army to zealously fight to maintain their privilege at the expense of other women's political, social, and economic equity. They cast these other women, often unmarried, single moms, gay women, and women of color as deserving of shame because of their own life choices. So I don't really understand how someone who is supposedly right-wing, maybe she's anti-right-wing and I read that wrong, I don't know, but I thought the description that she had on this website, and maybe I'll have to check that out, uh, was a really good description of of how Phyllis uh, banded these women together. In the Eagle Forum, they were taught how to handle the phone lines, how to call senators, and even how to dress and smile for the camera. She would give them speeches and things to study so they always appeared to know what they were talking about. She essentially convinced a group of white ladies to fight against their own rights. The main problems Phil had with the ERA were things, again, like unisex bathrooms, gay marriage, and women being drafted. But the draft was particularly a big thing for her for a while. But then, when Roe v. Wade was passed, that added fuel to her fire. She then added abortion to the mix. Phil said Roe v. Wade was, quote, the worst decision in the history of the Supreme Court, and is, quote, responsible for the killing of millions of unborn babies. Not true. I learned something new. Apparently... Religions were not always so against abortion. Like, apparently it wasn't always such this, like, big bipartisan issue. Uh, The evangelicals and conservatives didn't make much of a peep, apparently, when Roe was passed until Phyllis got involved, from what I'd heard. As far as the ERA goes, Republicans saw themselves as the party of Lincoln at the time. So they had to be seen as being for all equal liberties. So the fact that Phyllis was wanting to make Republicans into more of a white supremacist group uh, was not something that a lot of, like, real republicans wanted for the party republicans also believed it could mean equal laws for everyone therefore getting the government out of regulating the people so that was kind of their agenda as well it's like they didn't really want the government involved in stuff so the era would be like more government assistance and they were not for that this is when the disturbing and completely false descriptions of abortion began being used to turn people against the era and against abortion. The people who were against the ERA, Phyllis included, really wanted to make abortion a partisan issue and make it something that divide divided us and really separates the parties. And that's something that obviously is really still prevalent today. Like Republican uh, nominees have to be pro-life. Like there's no I could not imagine there's I don't think there's ever been a Republican nominee in my lifetime that has been openly pro-choice like that has become a staple of the party and it all happened during um, the ratification of the era in the 70s and like i said it was really effective her talk of abortion drastically changed the minds of religious voters because she essentially told them that you are either for abortion or you are against it and nobody wanted to say that they were for killing babies once that got out there There's this woman named Tanya Melich who has some interesting insight on Phil during this time. Tanya used to be just like Phyllis until one day she woke up and deprogrammed herself like she was leaving a cult and realized how wrong she was. Tanya was also at one point a contemporary of Phil's. She said it was Phyllis who made the religious right a political player, saying she, quote, unearthed the political gold of misogyny. I love that. It was Schlafly who translated fear of women's liberation into a political force in the Republican Party and thereby extended the foundation of the Republican Southern strategy. Now, not only did the strategy flourish on the backlash of the civil rights movement, but it was branded to include the backlash against the women's movement, too. All right, let's talk a bit about the Eagle Forum and stop ERA's lobbying tactics, shall we? they were known for baking pies and bread for lawmakers with the slogan, From the Breadmakers to the Breadwinners. This is really smart, but fucking evil. And it's a major ego boost to the lawmakers they're coming in contact with, reminding them of their higher power over their wives and daughters and making them see that women are actually happy in the lives they live and don't yearn for a life outside of making baked goods for the men around them. All right, let's get into the battle of Phil versus the feminists, shall we? I feel like I need to find like a little ding, ding, ding. Bell sound effects somewhere. Okay. So like I mentioned at the beginning, I recently binge watched Mrs. America. So they show a lot about the feminists involved with the ERA during this time and what they were doing while Phyllis was kind of doing her thing as well. So I watched the show and then I, of course, as I was watching after every episode, I had to go and like fact check everything because I want to know what's real and what's not. So I just kind of went further into that I want to first discuss the perspective of the women in the women's lib movement so if you want to go and listen to more about this oh gosh I had this listed in my notes and now I don't know where it is All right. I had to Google it. In our episode eight way back when, which is called the second wave equality now, N-O-W, we go into more of the feminist perspective of all of this. Uh, So this is just going to kind of be a little bit of a refresher, specifically also for the people that came in contact with Schlafly. So there was a lot of clash among older members of the feminist movement of the women's liberation movement, such as Betty Friedan, who had a very like white feminist whitewashed way of looking at the movement. Uh, she didn't really want a lot of forward um progression. She wasn't really for lesbian and gay rights and things like that for a while. She would come around, but there was a lot of tension and struggle between herself and the younger, newer, more progressive members, such as like Gloria Steinem and things like that. Betty and Gloria actually had a pretty public feud in the press, but were always respectful of each other when they were working together, according to Gloria. Betty took some good punches, though. In 1971, Betty said of Gloria, the media tried to make her a celebrity, but no one should mistake her for a leader. Ouch. She also called Gloria and Bella Abzug female chauvinists that were looking to profit off the women's lib movement, says the woman who wrote probably the best-selling feminist text of all time. For Gloria Steinem, abortion was a major issue that the women's movement should be focusing on. If you remember from the episode where I covered her, she had an abortion that she hadn't told anybody when she was young, and the doctor, who she later revealed to be Doctor, a London doctor by the name of John Sharp, and I I just started her book, My Life on the Road, and I this is in the very beginning, and she dedicates the book to this doctor as well. And he advised her to go and do exactly what she wanted to do with her life. And she wanted to give that same freedom to other women as well. I don't think I went into this very much. I've been learning more about Gloria Steinem since I did the episode covering her. So I might have to do more about her in the future. But but abortion, I think, I mean, I'm sure, particularly because it was something that she went through herself, uh, was something that uh, was so devastating to her uh that it hasn't become more more accepted in society uh because of all of the lies and things like that and especially because of all of the stories that she'd heard I didn't have this written in my notes, but after I was watching Mrs. America, I was talking to my mom on the phone, and she told me of a girl that she went to high school with who was like a mutual friend of another friend of hers who had actually died during a botched abortion. Like, this was a very, very serious, scary thing for women. Okay, let's get back to the Phyllis stock, shall we? Phyllis was really intimidated by the feminists, though she would never admit it, as they had strong political ties in the 70s. In fact, 1977 was actually named to be International Women's Year by the president, and Bella Abzug worked as the chair of the National Commission on the Observance of International Women's Year, and later she would be the chair of the National Advisory Commission for Women. So she was like in there with President Carter. The feminists had a lot of really important ties and were quite popular with, the majority of people, so that she had to have been intimidated by them. The feminists were also lawyers, writers, artists, and people with a lot of respect and connections in the United States, where Schlafly was pretty much an unknown on a wider scale. One of the many legendary moments in debate between Phyllis and a feminist comes from the debate she had against Betty Friedan on the ERA. When Phyllis suggested that the reason there were so few women in Congress was that women weren't willing to do the work to win elections and were more concerned with having babies, Betty got pissed. Now, it's not like she just said that and blew up out of nowhere. This has been a debate full of just maddening things that this woman says like you if I were to just read phyllis schlafly quotes y'all would be going crazy so after she said that betty fired back at her calling her a traitor to her sex which she is and calling her an aunt tom she topped it off by saying you're a witch i'd like to burn you at the stake fucking love that using the feminist witch shit against her so good Another feminist that went up against Phyllis was named Brenda Fain Fastow, who I mentioned earlier. Another feminist that went up against Phyllis was Brenda Fien Fastow, now just Brenda Fien. The debate was a special marriage edition where Phil was accompanied by her husband Fred and Brenda was accompanied by her then husband Mark Fastow. Real quick, Mark was kind of a feminist in his own right at the time. He and Brenda had met in law school at Harvard and when they married, they both hyphenated their last names to make it equal. So cute. In 1974, he published a book called The Male Machine, which was essentially an early explanation of toxic masculinity, so... Go Mark Fastow. Brenda helped found Miss Magazine with Gloria Steinem and co-founded the National Women's Political Caucus and the ACLU's Women's Rights Project with none other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who uh, I don't I don't think they went to Harvard at the same time, but I think they knew each other because of Harvard circles and were friends. So that's super cool. I wish I was friends with RBG. The best part of the debate was that Phyllis couldn't name any of the legal cases that she was referring to. And when going up against a real lawyer, you better know your shit. She was totally called out. To ensure this kind of embarrassment never happened again, Phil signed up for a legal course in 1975 and graduated with a Juris Doctor degree in 1978. A Juris Doctor degree is a graduate entry professional law degree. One thing that was mentioned either during one of the debates or interviews during that time, she says, When a woman walks across the room, she speaks with a universal body language that most men intuitively understand. Men hardly ever ask sexual favors of women from whom the certain answer is no. Virtuous women are seldom accosted by unwelcome sexual propositions or familiarities, of obscene talk, or profane language. This absolutely breaks my heart because it it takes away the hope for any conservative women that somebody is going to give a shit about you if you're abused. She's just reinforcing that if you are abused, it's your fault. You weren't virtuous. You weren't good enough. And if your husband beats you, it's because you did something wrong. In 2016, during the wake of the Me Too movement, she said on the topic of marital rape, when you get married, you have consented to sex. That's what marriage is all about. God, I fucking hate this woman. Not many other feminists were interested in debating Phyllis at the time as they thought it would only grow her celebrity. I think they were probably right in thinking that if they hadn't had given her so much like TV and press time, I wonder if Phyllis would have been as successful. Gloria Steinem said in 1977 that she had a quote, moral obligation not to enlarge the audience for a speaker who refuses to tell the truth. In one of her books, she calls Phyllis an artificial creation of the Fairness Doctrine, since her fame was completely fabricated by the media. Okay, do you want me to relieve the anger for a bit and talk about the time that Phyllis got what was coming to her? In April of 1977, she was hit in the face with a pie at an event for the Women's National Republican Club in New York, where she was receiving an award. The man who threw the pie was named Aaron Kay, a.k.a. the Yippie Pie Man, a 27-year-old who was part of a radical left-wing group called the Youth International Party who would toss baked goods in the faces of public figures. In case you were wondering, it was apple pie. Okay, let's jump to the National Women's Conference, which was held over a four-day long weekend before Thanksgiving in 1977. Around 20,000 people attended, and nearly 2,000 delegates came to the convention. The goal was to draft recommendations on 26 issues related to women. These issues included abortion, child care, employment, and rape, and to present a national plan of action to President Jimmy Carter in Congress. The event also drew celebrities such as First Ladies Rosalind Carter, Lady Bird Johnson, and Betty Ford. To begin the convention, runners carried a lit torch from Seneca Falls, New York, which was the site of the first women's rights convention, all the way to Houston. The delegates voted to support abortion rights, lesbian rights, and federally funded child care, among other recommendations. In her book, My Life on the Road, Gloria Steinem calls it the most important event nobody knows about. There were even moments during this event where it appeared that the two sides of women were actually able to come together a little bit. Historian Marjorie Spurrill wrote of the event in her book, saying, Feminists were pleased to see that, on some occasions, the, quote, anti-change delegates broke ranks to vote with the majority on several planks, including childcare, child abuse, credit, and employment. I now know more than ever that I was supposed to be born in 1951 instead of my mom because this conference sounds frickin' Awesome. That author Spruill writes that, quote, The event included pageantry, films, exhibits, stand-up comedy, a sweet honey-in-the-rock concert, and occasional spontaneous outbursts of hugging, singing, and dancing in the aisles. Sounds like there was a lot of drugs involved, and I kinda wish I was there. While the party was going on, there was a counter-rally, which is known as the pro-life, pro-family rally, taking place at the Astrodome. The attendees were overwhelmingly white, and many of them were men. This sounds like the opposite of a good time to me. Phyllis spoke at the rally, as did other conservative activists against the ERA. She said, if you stay with us, the Equal Rights Amendment will die in 16 months from Tuesday, and then we'll have another party. Also, she complained that if Congress would give them as much money as she gave the feminists, or as she calls libbers, they would have won already. There was an Oklahoma woman by the name of Diane Edmondson, who I want to mention, who created these mixtapes that were designed to rile up conservative women to take action against the ERA. These tapes were released before the rally in the event, and sure enough, there was a huge turnout of hateful people in attendance. This rally really helped social conservatives see their political power and that they had power and numbers and led to an increase in activism in Houston. Anti-feminists unfortunately achieved control of the Mississippi delegation, which was all white and mostly male. A state delegate by the name of Dallas Higgins was married to the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan and admitted to attending meetings. An Alabama Klan member said they were going to go down to Houston and protect their women from lesbians. All fear the lesbians, apparently. In 1979, Phil took the bar exam. When she was confronted about this by a photographer, she responded reluctantly that she plans to study constitutional law, not to actually practice. She maintains that this is not contrary to her beliefs, saying, I've raised six kids and I can do what I want. I've always said that women can do whatever they want. She even wore a wig to the exam to disguise herself so she wouldn't be noticed. So obviously, I don't think she wanted word getting out that she had taken the exam. I don't know. When she was asked about the fact that she wore a wig, she said that she just didn't have time to do her hair. Sure. Let's look at an overview of what happened to the ERA once Phil got involved. Seven more states ratified the amendment after Phyllis began organizing, but five states also rescinded their ratification. So it was a bit of a game of tug of war. To celebrate the defeat of the ERA, Phyllis and Stop ERA threw a party. Ronald Reagan sent a congratulatory telegram, and the band played the most appropriate song, Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. Don't ruin that song for me, Phyllis. Donald Critchlow, who is the author of In Defense of Populism, wrote that he is, quote, "...absolutely convinced that it, the ERA, would have passed without her involvement. She was able to single-handedly organize the Stop ERA movement." By 1985, the ERA was still three states short of ratification, and it essentially dies because there kept being extensions and they ran out. So where are we with the Equal Rights Amendment today? The last and latest state to ratify the ERA was Indiana, with Senator Wayne Townsend casting the tie-breaking vote. And that was in 2020, I believe. Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia ratify between 2017 and 2020. According to EqualityNow.org, now that the necessary 38 states have ratified, Congress must eliminate the original deadline. In February 2020, the U.S. House of Representatives passed H.J. Res. 79. Next, we now must urge senators to pass S.J. Res. 6, a parallel piece of legislation that eliminates the deadline. These two pieces of legislation, when passed, will eliminate one of the procedural barriers standing in the way of enshrining gender equality in the U.S. Constitution. So that's kind of where we're at in the struggle of getting the the ERA still to this day into the Constitution. So because of these extensions and previous deadlines... That's kind of where we're running into problems. And there are still a lot of sources that I read of people who are against the ERA who say very firmly that it's never going to happen. So we'll see. So I didn't really have a place to fit this into the story as it really has nothing to do directly with Phyllis's fight against the ERA. But we do need to talk about her eldest child, her son John. So... I found an article from September 19th, 1992 from the LA Times, and in it they talk about how John publicly revealed he was gay after an article in QW Magazine outed him. He said he decided to come forward because he wanted to tell his own story, which I completely agree with. No one should be outed by somebody else. He especially had a problem with the media pointing out the hypocrisy of Phyllis Schlafly's son being gay. John defends his mother's views, saying the family values movement is not anti-gay. He says he thinks his mother does good work. He added that they don't agree on everything, but says the effort to convey the Republican convention and the platform and speakers as bigots and gay bashers is completely inaccurate. The concept of family values should not be threatening to gays and lesbians. Most gays and lesbians have good relations with their family, as I do. A spokesperson for Clinton's campaign said, he must be an anguished young man to carry that secret in the midst of his intolerant mother. Phyllis saw her son's outing as a political hit against her, and I... think it very well could have been that makes a lot of sense and I feel really bad for John because he didn't deserve to be pulled into that uh, to try to you know embarrass Phyllis or get a rise out of her in some way no one's sexuality is anyone's business but their own so the fact that they did that to me is really icky but it is there's no way they couldn't point out this hypocrisy once the news was out when Phyllis had been asked for her stand on gay rights she said There's nothing about my position on gay rights that should be offensive to a gay unless he's making some kind of preferential status. First of all, don't call them a gay. And like what, marriage? Is marriage really preferential status? She's also talked a lot through the years about the fear that the church would be forced To perform same-sex marriage. And she's been talking about that for decades. And it's just, again, not true. Full of lies. Um, I don't know if this part is sad or funny. But in this 92 LA Times article, it said that at the time of the interview, John was a 41-year-old attorney still living at home with his parents. Phyllis Schlafly continued to do shitty things until she died on September 5th, 2016, at the age of 92. Her final book was published the day after she died. It was titled, The Conservative Case for Trump. That's it. That's Phyllis Schlafly. I hope that you all enjoyed this, that you learned something new. I learned a ton of new stuff. Um, It's grown a whole new interest in the women's liberation movement for me. Um, I had so, so, so much fun researching this. This one, I actually, I had over 40 pages of notes typed, and I can't tell you how many hours of research I put in. So I really hope that you all enjoyed this and have been enjoying this entire series that I've put out. I forgot to remind you at the top of the episodes. So I'm going to remind you now that if you haven't already, please go and leave a review and let us know what you think of the show. Let us know. It really is the best way that you could possibly support us and show us your love. And we really appreciate that. So you can also rate and review us on our Facebook business and group page. You can also chat with the fellow listeners in the group page. If you want to message me about anything that's going on right now if you want to talk about the episode anything like that go ahead and email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com and catch us on instagram at angry neighborhood feminist and follow us there direct message us whatever you want to do there we have a twitter that we sometimes use at yamp podcast y-a-n-f podcast and last but not least if you don't already go ahead and listen to us on radio public it is a free way for you to listen and it helps us out just a tiny bit all right with all of that being said i encourage you